It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's tournament time. Such a nice distraction from politics. This week had a little bit of March Madness chaotic energy. There were a lot of bills being filed and bills moving just kind of all over the place. On Monday, the sports gambling bill was released and week after week you were hearing, when is sports gambling going to be filed? When is it going to be filed? What was filed and it's going to move next week. Medicaid expansion passed the Senate this week. Yes, it goes back to the House for a final vote before being sent to the governor. That bill is a modification of the House bill that passed a couple weeks ago. So it's basically going to be a concurrence vote. That's right. We saw opioid legislation. Yep. We saw a couple different types of controlled substances legislation this week. There have been a few different bills about fentanyl, opioids, and then we saw in J2 on Wednesday, Representative Ken Fontenot presented his bill on embalming fluid and how that is something that's being laced with fentanyl or PCP. Very sad story. He had someone from his district, a mother, Mm-hmm. who sounds like her son was using this embalming fluid. Representative Fontenot said that not only does it give a high, but it gives superhuman strength and that this uh, child, who's an adult, it sounds like, had broken into his mother's home mm-hmm. and she had to shoot him. And it was just a very sad story. And the committee was really just blown away. Legislators had never heard of embalming fluid being used as a way of drug use. And Representative Fontenot said that you can't really charge someone with having this embalming fluid because the drugs are masked. So if you're going to lace it with, let's say, PCP or something, if you test it because of the makeup of embalming fluid, it it will mask the appearance of the drug. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So that bill, Rakeem Shackelford Embalming Act, House Bill 278, that bill passed a Judiciary Committee this week. It has yet to go to the House floor. We saw some other legislation as well. The Conference of DAs was pushing legislation. That's the death by distribution bill, House Bill 250. Yeah, that bill would have tougher penalties for folks who are dealers of drugs and charge them with murder. That bill passed the Judiciary One Committee this week. It still needs to go to the House floor and then, of course, on to the Senate. On Wednesday, we sat outside the House chamber for their one-day voting session. As they moved through the calendar... Things got increasingly more heated, which led up eventually to an omnibus gun vote. Yeah, it started with an energy bill that Representative Dean Arp was presenting. It was about, you know, whether you use gas appliances, electric appliances, your right to be able to do that. I guess this bill would keep local ordinances from restricting what kind of power you used. And that bill seemed to become kind of a 
everyone stand up and give their philosophy or beliefs around energy policy in general. And that felt very tense because that bill didn't really have that much discussion in committee, Mm -hmm. but it certainly did when it got to the House floor. And then we end the Wednesday session with a bill that really covers a lot of issues as it pertains to guns. That is when tension got really high in the House. So if you follow along at home, or even if you are at the General Assembly, there's a chamber dashboard, and you can see what bill they're on. If they're on an amendment, it'll tell you that. If something failed or passed, it'll tell you that. And you could see that there were amendments on the gun bill. What happened was, and we talked about this a couple weeks back, that on the Senate side, they use a different method than the House does. And the House moved the previous question, which is a procedural move, and none of those amendments were heard. Now, when that happens, the minority and majority leader both have three minutes to speak on the procedure. And Representative Reeves took that time to address his caucus and also address the Republican caucus. He let them know that he was very disappointed that they were calling the question. That cuts off all debate, as you said, cuts off all the amendments. They're done. We're not hearing anything. We are calling the question. It's not a procedure that's used a lot, but if you're in the minority— You certainly have been silenced. And he said that he did not appreciate that the Democratic legislators in the House were silenced. And he said that he wants to have a conversation with the majority about future votes. And he's looking out for his caucus members. Now, we pointed this out before on this podcast, and we've had Representative Reeves as our guest on the podcast. He is known for lowering the temperature. He does not speak loudly. He doesn't show himself on the House floor. But he did yesterday express a lot of disappointment in the majority's decision to do this. We should point out that Representative John Bell, the majority leader in the House, he is friends with Representative Reeves. And we've been with both of them together. They think a lot of each other. But yesterday... The decision was made by the majority. Now, this bill does repeal the pistol permit system, which is a system we've had for decades. It's basically your sheriff doing a background check on anyone applying for a pistol permit. Now, there's been some controversy about that. Wake yeah. County and Mecklenburg County, very they have uh, been delayed in processing some of these permits. Some folks have argued that this is a vestige of the Jim Crow law. We do know that a lot of gun laws at the state level did pass as we had a rise in the Black Panther movement of the 1960s. There is a direct tie to that. But what Republicans are saying is that the system right now is duplicative. We have a national data bank that screens applicants and Therefore, we need to repeal this. Now, there are some holes in it, but the bill doesn't just do that. It has some other provisions as well. Yeah, the bill also has its safe storage initiative, and there is a provision, I believe we've talked about this on the podcast, that has passed as a standalone bill that would allow churches that operate as schools during the week to have their security teams carry on the weekend, just like other churches do. 
Now, what was notable about this vote, despite Representative Reeves's concerns about the question being called, the bill did have three Democrats who voted yes. The three Democrats who voted for this bill were Representative Michael Ray, Representative Shelley Willingham, and Representative Marvin Lucas. What do you think this means for the veto? Because this was different than that initial bill of the pistol permit system. It was a standalone bill. When it passed through the House as a standalone, no Democrats voted for it. And that was notable because Representative Ray was a primary sponsor of that bill. The supporters of this bill that passed Wednesday, they have theoretically a veto-proof majority on that vote. By the way, we have yet to see a veto from Governor Cooper. We know we noted it last week. There are a couple bills on his desk. I think Saturday is the deadline for him to make a decision on those bills. It's the riding bill and the Hotel Safety Act. We think he is going to let those bills become law without his signature, but we'll see. I think this bill, the pistol permit bill, that probably rises to a new concern level for the governor. We'll see how that plays out. But that bill is also on the governor's desk. Speaking of the governor, he released his budget on Wednesday. He had a press conference where he talked through the budget. And then Thursday morning, his budget director came over to the General Assembly and presented the budget to the appropriations committees. And in a surprise move, Senator Phil Berger and Speaker Moore said they love the budget and they're ready to... They'll accept it. (laughs) And we're going to go home next week. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was not well received by the General Assembly. And we should point out that the budget was 14% higher than what the General Assembly had locked in as their ceiling on how much they're willing to spend. I think it's $29.7 billion they're willing to spend. The governor is coming in at a price tag of around $34 billion. And they just said that this is reckless. And they said this isn't going to happen. But they did hear him out in the Appropriations Committee on Thursday morning. By the way, that was today. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. His budget includes an 18% pay raise for teachers and an 8% for state employees. And that is over two years. For those of you who don't work in the General Assembly every day or kind of new to this podcast or new to NC Poll World, the governor's proposal is just that, a proposal. The budget is really written by the General Assembly. The House is behind closed doors right now as we speak. They are working on really kind of the final edition of their version of the budget. They will have their budget out first week in April. It will pass the House, go over to the Senate, and then the Senate will take that budget, gut it, put their own budget in, and we think that'll be around the middle of May. Mm -hmm. And so now you have two budgets out there. You could say you have three budgets with the governor's budget. But what they'll do is the House has its version, the Senate has its, And then they will come up with a conference committee, and that will be negotiations between the House's version and the Senate's version. They will produce a final budget by June 30th, we think, which is the last day of the fiscal year. We had some candidacy news this week for the 2024 election. That's right. House member Representative Wesley Harris announced that he will be running for state treasurer. That's something 
that he said he was exploring, but on Monday, he officially launched his campaign. Had about a three-minute video that we saw on Twitter and social media, kind of giving a profile of who he is. He self-describes as a nerd and said, we need a nerd as treasurer. The current treasurer, Dale Falwell, has yet to make an announcement about what he's going to do in 2024, whether he runs for re-election as treasurer or he jumps into that governor's race, still yet to be determined. We had said in past podcasts that former Representative Raymond Smith, a Democrat, that he was looking to run for lieutenant governor. That news seemed to change this week when we saw an announcement from him. He is running for mayor of Goldsboro. This week's podcast interview was quite timely because the Supreme Court reheard the cases on redistricting and voter ID. And on Wednesday, there was a challenge at the court about whether Justice Berger should have to recuse himself in the voter ID case. And all of the justices voted that he shouldn't. So timely interview that we got to sit down with Justice Berger this week and talk to him. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Justice Phil Berger Jr., welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. To start us off, tell us about what your job entails. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? Oh, wow. So so hitting me hard straight <laughs> off, right? So so really what we do uh, on the Supreme Court, on the appellate courts, is, is unlike what you see on TV, right? So on television, you see uh, a, a jury box, a witness stand. You hear y- lawyers yelling, objection. Uh, and making sort of snap decisions uh, about uh, issues or cases that, that are in front of the court. Uh, appellate courts are a little bit different. We do everything uh, on what's called briefs, right? Those are writings about legal arguments uh, that the parties submit to the court. Mm-hmm. So, so we read uh, on the Supreme Court on average about 18,000 pages uh, per month. Um, it, it is uh, reading intensive, which is why, uh, even though your listeners can't see, I have glasses now. My, my eyesight has just uh, completely failed me. Uh, but, but really, we, we read all day. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we hear uh, arguments in court. And those arguments, uh, if you've ever been to court, is much, uh, much like a summary judgment argument. Purely a legal uh, question. Uh, there are very few issues that we address factually. So I, I like to tell people, that if you're familiar with football, we are like the booth review on a challenge, right? The, the trial court judges or the referees on the field and they're making certain calls. But when the pictures, the video all goes up uh, to the booth review, we're sort of left with what the record is uh, on the field, right? Did the uh, player catch the ball inbounds or out of bounds? Did he make uh, the touchdown? And those pictures, those photographs, those videos are all that the, the booth review uh, are able to, to look at. Mm-hmm. They can't call back down and say, hey, what did you see on this, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. We read the briefs, we read the record, uh, and we function much like the booth review in the NFL. 
how many people do you have on your staff that are helping you on a day-to-day basis? Uh, so, so in the office, we have uh, one executive assistant and two clerks. Uh, our clerks uh, are, are phenomenal. We, we've been very blessed to have uh, really smart people. And um, our, our clerks do research for us. They help us draft uh, opinions and uh, legal memoranda that we send around to the other members of the court. Uh, and then uh, our executive assistant basically keeps us uh, all going in the same direction, uh, circulates opinions, uh, edits, mm-hmm. and reviews opinions. So uh, we've, we've got three people in addition to myself. But one of the things I'm really proud of is our internship program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we at all times have at least one intern from a law school. And at, in the summer, it's, um, it is unbelievable the number of interns we have, both uh, from law school and undergraduate institutions. That, that are interested not only in learning how the court operates, but uh, maybe where their place in the legal field um, uh, will be. I've read a few books about the U.S. Supreme Court, and I'm fascinated by some of the quirks of the court, the way decisions are made. Are there quirks at the North Carolina Supreme Court level that you think listeners would be fascinated by? In many government institutions, seniority plays a, a, a critical role in how things operate. Uh, and it's no different at the Supreme Court here in North Carolina. It has more to do with sort of voting order and pecking order okay. in, in, in some circumstances. Okay. Uh, but but it, it's one of those things that it, no matter how experienced you are as, as a former clerk, perhaps, uh, or as a lawyer practicing in front of the Supreme Court, uh, until you get behind the doors, right, there's, there's a process mm-hmm. that has to be followed. And seniority plays a huge role in that. If you were to just follow the General Assembly through the news, you would think that the legislators hated each other. They're at each other's throat. And it's the exact opposite. You see a lot of collegiality, people going out to dinner together. Same for the court? Or is there a collegiality that you can kind of let us in on? Yeah. So so I think that's another really great point. Um, If you were to read uh, Twitter or the papers, (laughs) you you would think that... uh, uh, members of the court are just at each other's throat all the time, and that's just uh, that's just not the case. Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, we get along very well. I have the utmost respect for Anita Earls. I, I cannot tell you what a passionate, hard worker uh, she is, and and it is a, it, just like uh, uh, if if you've played sports, mm-hmm. right? It, it is it is good to compete uh, against the best, right? Because they tend to bring out the best in you, and Justice Earls. Uh, is that way. She is always on her game uh, and she is very professional and passionate. And, and it's, it's a pleasure to serve with her. And, and I think she makes uh, not only me, but I think she makes the court better. Uh, say, and the same with Justice Morgan. Justice Morgan and I have, have just a wonderful time. Huge sports fan, mm-hmm. right? And, and so we've, we've got a connection through sports. Uh, but I have been able to successfully convert him uh, or, or introduce him, perhaps is a better word, to the Detroit Tigers, okay. right? So he's, he's a Washington Nationals <laughs> fan. But come baseball season, uh, he and I talk Detroit baseball all the time. I just enjoy serving with Justice Moore. I, mean, he's, he, I count him as a friend. Stepping away from the court a little bit, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you as a person. You've referenced sports a couple of times. You're active in your community at home. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, I think uh, sports are, are important and unfortunately um, playing a less important role in society, especially team sports. Uh, but, but grew up playing football, basketball, baseball, a little bit of soccer, but not much. And, um, you know, just always around other individuals who are working together for a goal. 
the things you learn, the lessons you learn uh, in team sports are, are just so critical to carry you through good times, bad times uh, throughout the rest of your life because you know that there's a group of people you can count on, right? There, there's certain uh, things dealing with adversity uh, that you have to overcome. So from an early age, I was introduced uh, to those and, and was, was fortunate enough to, to do fairly well uh, in my athletic career and have been able to pass that on uh, to my kids. And if, if I could brag on my kids, my, my, my son, who is uh, at William Peace University, just set the career strikeout record. He's got the single season record, wow. single season wins. I mean, he's, just, he's done very well. Uh, and then my, my other son, Will, is at Wofford where he runs track and made wow. the um, uh, all freshman Southern Conference indoor track team for the 800 meters. And those are individual accomplishments, but it's all built upon this foundation of, of team sports, mm-hmm. right? They, they, again, played at an early level uh, or an early age, just like I did. And again, I think the lessons that you learn about perseverance, overcoming adversity uh, are, are just so critical to the development of, of young people. You grew up in Rockingham County? Uh, for the most part, yeah, yeah. Uh, about, about middle school. Okay. Your father is Senator Phil Berger. He has talked about his humble beginnings, putting himself through college, putting himself through law school. You remember part of this. Oh, yes, definitely. Can you talk about that? There, there are a lot of people, um, a lot of members of the public who, who think this uh, uh, sort of political uh, career, uh, political family has uh, uh, been around for a long time. And that's, right. that's just not the case. So, so my father worked in uh, the mill. Right. We grew up in Danville. Uh, he lived in Danville, grew up there. And, um, you know, it's a mill town. So so the expectation for everybody in mill town was that you go to work at the mill. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom was a loom operator uh, in the denim plant at Dan River Mills. Uh, They're on Schoolfield Street in, in Danville. And my father worked at Gypsum uh, International Paper now uh, out in Caswell County. He tells a story, you know, he's standing at the end of a uh, uh, press board machine one day and sort of says, I, I, I want to do something different with my life. And the different was just a, a simple goal at the time, which was to go to college. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, he enrolled at Danville Community College at some point, moved uh, to Kroger, where he was the produce manager at Kroger mm-hmm. and took him nine years to complete his undergraduate degree because he would take a class uh, on his lunch break. Right. So, so he would take, he, he wore this, he wore this awful brown tie, right? Mm-hmm. He wore khakis, a white shirt, whitish, mm-hmm. uh, and a, and a brown tie to Kroger every day. I mean, it was wow. just, that was his uniform and it, it was, uh, I, I just won't forget that brown tie, but, but he would hang the brown tie up, go to class, come back and clock back in. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that was, uh, sort of his path to law school. And one day, um, he loaded up the family in uh, a Volkswagen Scirocco, right? <laughs> a, ni- this, a 1977 Volkswagen Scirocco and takes us out to Nebraska because that's one of the law schools that he was looking at. Wow. Right. So, I, I mean, I can remember going out there we went to Memorial stadium, got to walk in mm-hmm. and see uh, like spring practice or something mm-hmm. at, at one point. Um, but, but he, he settled on Winston Salem and I mean, I, we loaded up the U-Haul he um, uh, drove his Jeep and we went down to, or actually he had sold his Jeep, uh, go down to Winston-Salem and uh, he started law school there. Looking back, that must be so incredible to see what your father did, the sacrifices he made, and to see where he is now and where you are now. And I assume your siblings 
your lives changed because of the sacrifices he made. Well, I, and, and this, this perhaps gets overused, but you could look at my father and my mother and say they, they are the example of the American dream. Yeah. A young couple, right, who, who got married right, right about the time they graduated from high school, had uh, two kids uh, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and everything uh, about that situation, um, you would think it doesn't lead to where it is today. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, again, the mentality uh, when, when you grow up with everybody working in the mill is that that that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and because he had the uh, idea and, and the grit and um, just the ability to, to say, I, I want different, um, you know, his, my parents life changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, you know, good or bad, right or wrong. Right. You know, we're, we're in a situation where uh, education uh, became very important, whereas in, in, in a mill town, uh, education tends to lead right to the mill. How old were you when he was in law school? Third grade. Third grade. Third, fourth, fifth. So I, I can remember going over to Wake Forest, um, Carswell Hall. Uh-huh. It was where the old law school is. I would run around that place with my brother and I'm sure the law students just hated us and hated my father for the fact you got these, you know, eight, nine year old kids running around the law school after they've been, you know, shooting basketball in the gym. But we had a wonderful time uh, doing it. My mom worked in the admissions office at the time. So, I mean, our life was at the campus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we hung around the football players and the basketball players and, uh, uh, just, a just a great environment to grow up as a kid. You know, we, legitimately we we were poor he painted houses he, right? he had yeah. he had to paint apartments he made apartments. i think i think he made it was either 75 dollars or 175 dollars an apartment mm-hmm. that when when he would paint and uh, you know we lived in we lived in this two-bedroom apartment um that that for a college kid would be fine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but but for a 30 year old adult with two crazy kids uh, it was it was tight quarters uh, so we spent a lot of time outside, a lot of time with uh, uh, friends, and a lot of time with sports. But um, you know, it, it, it's one of those you look back, and, and again, you go, that, "There's every re- you you look at people today, right? Mm-hmm. There is every excuse not to succeed, mm-hmm. right? Every excuse to just sit back and say, no, 'No, I'm, I'm comfortable here.' But because he made decisions that uh, were absolutely uncomfortable, right?" Um, you know, again, he, he put himself on a different, different path. So when you were growing up, did you want to be an attorney? Did you want to be a judge? How did that come about? So, so sort of split. I, I really wanted to be a coach and a teacher. I mean, that, that was sort of my path that okay. uh, I, I was going to be a history teacher in uh, high school and a coach um, for football and baseball. And, and sort of after I graduated law school, I'm sorry, after I graduated undergrad, um, I, I said, well, may, maybe we should do this a little bit differently and applied to law schools and uh, uh, was able to get in. But w- one of the really neat things about my career uh, is um, I have been able to be a coach, mm-hmm. right? I've been able to be, and, and lots of people are coaches to their kids. And that's very uh, special uh, and um, uh, a, a lot of fun. But I've also been able to coach at the high school level. All right. So I, I served as a defensive coordinator at one point uh, for the local high school team. I've uh, served as the assistant coach and pitching coach for the local high school team. And, uh, you know, the, the ability to work with young people uh, and instill some of those, um, um, not just values, but right, but some of that um, attitude 
uh, about how you have to approach situations uh, with young people today because they're they're I mean you know from athletic teams kids look up to their coaches yeah and the ability for some of these really underprivileged kids right to look up and see there's somebody called a judge right there's somebody called a prosecutor and I've I've kind of heard about these but but I've got one right here and he may not be what the newspaper or the TV uh, makes that group of people out to be. And, and I think that sort of example for children of, of what the judicial system really is can be important. Yeah. Listeners are going to want to know, uh, so let's get this out of the way. What positions did you play in football and baseball? So, so you would not believe it now, but in uh, football, I was a defensive back. All right. Right. I played uh, receiver a little bit, but was pretty good at, at defensive back. I was much faster than I am. <laughs> Now and then, uh, in in baseball, uh, high school shortstop pitcher, and in college, uh, played third and outfield. They let me pitch one inning, um, but but that was about the end of my pitching career. Okay, and we're going to get this question: How does one become a Detroit Tigers fan? So lived up in Michigan for a year, okay. right? And um, you could get two. This has been a, this has been thirty years ago. <laughs> you get two fifty bleacher seats to Old Tiger Stadium, yeah. right? And and you sit out there with the most colorful people uh-huh. you can possibly imagine. I have people brown bagging it out there, yeah. passed out in the bleachers, <laughs> and just yelling obscenities at people. It was it was so much fun to go to Old Tiger Stadium. Okay, and that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's not much baseball to see, right? I mean, it's not the best baseball. Yeah, say. well, <laughs> especially at the time, you know, they, and and then they sort of uh, peaked a little bit with uh, Verlander and some of yeah. those guys. But um, yeah, old, old Tiger Stadium was was uh, not not known for a lot of wins, but a lot of fun to go to. All right. Do you feel optimistic about the Tigers this no. year? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's a quick answer. <laughs> so judges are known for having a style. Can you talk a little bit about your style or how you approach a case when you are reading? So the first thing I, I look for is, uh, well, I, let me let me take a step back, right? What What's the starting point, right? And, and the starting point for me is, is the statute or the constitution, mm-hmm. right? Something that the legislature, the people have written down. Um, judges interpret cases and, and uh, prior opinions and uh, statutes in, in many different ways. So I, I think for an individual to start with uh, the interpretation that another judge has given uh, the words that the legislature or um, city council or county commissioners uh, have given, I, I think, it is the wrong way, right? So, so my starting place is always with the Constitution or the statute. Uh, and then you move into, okay, what, what have prior courts said these words mean? And, and I, think, I think that's important for two reasons. One, it, uh, it is fidelity uh, to the true source of power uh, in any uh, constitutional republic, which is the people. Uh, and then also it is uh, fidelity to uh, uh, past decisions of the court. Do you ever find it's that's difficult? I mean, is it is it something that you can bring to every single case without fail? Or sometimes is that hard? Well, I, I think there are. If, if there is ambiguity. That's um, where it's bad, right? Yeah. So so if a statute or, or constitutional provision has some, some measure of ambiguity, uh, then, then it leads to the potential for judges to uh, insert or inject uh, uh, their own opinion, right? If, if the words as written are clear and unambiguous, then there is no need for uh, further interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think that's where the public misses the nuance of, of the courts, right? Yeah. Because, because it's easy to look at uh, the Bible, for, mm-hmm. for, for instance, 
right? You hear a lot of people interpret the Bible and, and they want to look at um, issues and areas to confirm what, what they want to do or what they have done, right? <laughs> if you look at the plain text of a statute uh, in that fashion, I want, I want it to confirm, then it leads to the opportunities for judges to tinker. And, and I think, uh, again, that, that's problematic. Yeah. Uh, but but if you if your starting point is what do these words say and mean, and is there then is there ambiguity, right? Then there is less opportunity for um, there, there's judicial restraint, right? right? I am not going to inject myself into uh, what the legislature has already decided, what what the governor has already signed off, what the president has already signed off, mm -hmm. what the people have authorized. So walk us through your career a little bit. You started out at the law firm with your dad and brother walk us through how you got to where you are now. My goal throughout uh, law school, uh, it, before going to law school, uh, when, when that process became available was to go back uh, to Rockingham County and practice in a small town firm and, um, you know, help my community, hopefully do some things in the community that were beneficial, but, um, never really a, a lot beyond that. But I, I graduate, uh, get to, get to the law firm, Right. And, and I'm working with my dad and it's less than six months. It, it's uh, it's five months after I pass the bar, get my license, uh, start practicing law that my dad comes in and says, uh, hey, I'm going to run for the North Carolina Senate. Oh, wow. Right. So, so this goal of, of sort of uh, working together and, and being together sort of um, evaporates. We, we were 10 feet apart for five months and then uh, that that was sort of sort of it. But, but my goal was, was to go and, and practice in that small town firm. Well, at, at some point, right, the opportunity presented itself to, to run for district attorney, uh, challenged uh, an incumbent, uh, and was, was able to win in uh, 2006, which was an awful year for uh, Republicans. Uh, but, but we were able to, to uh, run a campaign that, that successfully uh, convinced the voters that uh, there was better choice mm -hmm. and was able to serve eight years as DA. Uh, and then, um, you know, in, in a position where uh, I had a decision to make, do I run for DA again or do I seek something else? Uh, made the decision to, to run for Congress. And uh, that, that turned out to be a good decision uh, for my career, but a bad decision uh, for my um, interest in being a member of Congress. Right. So I lost, lost and uh, uh, had to find something to do. Right. My, mm -hmm. my term as DA was over. Um, didn't didn't get didn't pass the job interview like uh, I wanted to. Mm. And all of a sudden there, there's a position that opens up at OAH here in Raleigh uh, as an administrative law judge. Now you're going, what on earth is an administrative <laughs> law judge? What is administrative? And that, right. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, this sounds interesting, but I don't know anything about administrative law. So if, if you think about how the government operates, uh, the, the executive branch carries out legislative measures through agencies. Right. And uh, administrative law essentially deals with that body of law uh, on how administrative agencies or, or executive agencies uh, carry out the law. Okay. And uh, so there there it, it touches every facet uh, of your life. And really, j people just don't realize it. It has to do with licensing uh, of law enforcement, right? licensing of, of attorneys, DEQ, you know, okay. all of these uh, policies and procedures that, that you sort of hear about on whether or not you can build a, a road or you can, you can uh, open a business or these sorts okay. of things. At some point, the administrative law touches that. Uh, and uh, my skill set in the courtroom as a prosecutor, uh, I think was one of the things that drew me 
to the people at OAH that they needed someone who could try cases. So in that capacity, I, I got assigned some of the, the more complicated uh, cases because of my background in the courtroom. And, and then um, just out of the blue, there, there was a race for uh, the Court of Appeals uh, where the incumbent was, was running against uh, a Republican. And the Republican dropped out around uh, Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Right. The year before the election. So this is this is 2015. Thanksgiving of 2015. And I start getting phone calls. Uh, hey, you need to run for this. And I told I, I am not interested uh, in statewide campaign. I'm not interested. I'm content where I am. Uh, and phone calls continue to go. Well, if, if you remember, that's that's a very uh, truncated uh, filing period that was in December because the presidential primary had been moved to March. All these situations. And I said, look, even if I wanted to. I can't do this because my family and I, uh, we are all going to be in Disney world during the filing period. So no <laughs> great excuse. Right. Yeah. Well, and a lot of fun. Well, <laughs> so eventually relent and, um, file to, to run for the court of appeals and, uh, leave immediately to go to Disney world. All right. right. So, so it, it, it really was, um, just luck. Yeah. I mean, just, just dumb luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, because some people, Right. Saw in me something that I didn't see in myself. Okay. Right. Uh, and then a similar situation with the Supreme Court. Um, Chief Justice Martin resigns to go be uh, dean at a law school. Uh, the, the maneuvering uh, about appointments takes place. And then there's a seat that opens up. And, and some people say, hey, you, you might should should take a look at this. Uh, and, and again, I, I did. Uh, bo- both of those years were not expected to be. Uh, strong Republican year. So it's kind of odd that mm-hmm. uh, my, my career has progressed through uh, wins in, in what should not be good Republican years. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I'm just uh, I'm very fortunate uh, that, that my path has uh, developed the way it the way it has. Running as a judge in a statewide campaign has to be really tough because voter information is not at an all time high for those sorts of positions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so one of the things that, that you want to do in, in running any campaign is you want to be able to touch as many people as possible, right? You want, you want to be able to convince as many people as possible through, through personal interaction that, that you are the better choice, uh, in, in any election. And the difficulty with a statewide campaign is, uh, one, uh, there, there are very limited resources for a judge to get out and do that. Two, uh, there are limited opportunities for a judge to get out and do that. And three, Nobody cares who the judges are anyway, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got, you've got sort of three strikes against you as, as you uh, uh, walk into any room. The way you, you do that, I think, is you have to rely on uh, a, a huge network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and anybody who is successful in a statewide campaign, uh, especially on, on the judicial level, is relying on, for, for conservatives, one particular group of people, right? And, and it is the women's groups that, that populate the, the counties and cities <laughs> and the party uh, because they stand out at the polls and they hand out uh, flyers uh, with conservative judges. And there is not a uh, judge or justice elected statewide uh, on the Republican side uh, who would be where they are today if it weren't for the women's groups. And, and that, that's just, um, that, that's how you have to do it. As, as far as issues, right, that, that's a, a little tricky. You're not allowed to say anything about um, uh, pending cases about how you would rule, uh, on, um, on cases. So, so whenever I would give my stump speech, I would preface it with, 
hey, I'm going to sound like a typical politician, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm going to tell you absolutely nothing and just ask you to trust me, right? right. I, I'm going to do a good job uh, and, and I'm going to interpret blah, 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 right? And, and uh, unfortunately, that, that's the way our judicial elections are, uh, that, that we're not permitted um, to, to, give, um, to give the full story uh, of, of how we see things. Do you have any thoughts of maybe running for a legislative or executive branch seat at some point? No. No. You're, you're courts all the way. So I have a, a great deal of respect for members of Congress and members of our legislature who have to uh, raise money and be on all the time. Right. Uh, as a judge... I am able to sit back and read and uh, be with my family, and I don't have to worry about raising, you know, fifty thousand dollars a month or whatever that mm-hmm. figure is. There's some quality of life issues uh, that are far better than having to be in, in that sort of ringer mm-hmm. all the time. Now, it, that's not to say if the opportunity presented itself that I wouldn't consider other opportunities to serve. But right now, I cannot see. Uh, legislative or executive service being any part of my future. You're a young man though, right? And your father got in. It sounds like the kids were grown when he got into. Yeah, he was ancient when he started. And he's ancient now. <laughs> no, it, you amazing. said this. Yeah. Senator Burger, he your used to be a young guy. <laughs> I don't know what happened to him. He's all gray now, losing his hair. So is Brian. He's only 50. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. Sorry, you're 51. I know that. Oh, you're 51? Okay, so my birthday is a couple of weeks. I'll be 51. All right, well, welcome to the club. Yeah. (laughs) I'm gray, and you got hair. You're not gray. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be a little bit difficult reading headlines that maybe target you or say that you're going to vote a certain way on cases because of your dad. Can you talk about that a little bit? So I'll, I'll go back to sports. Right. If, if, again, if you've ever been on a sports team, you understand that, that there is a very close knit group of people uh, that you rely on and depend on. And uh, when it comes to noise, that, um, that sports team is uninterested uh, in anything but results. Right. The noise does not matter. And that's how I approach all this. Uh, I, I don't read papers. I look at Twitter, I look at Facebook. Uh, but I don't, Those are toxic places. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't watch, okay. uh, the news. Okay. So, so that, that noise does not, uh, reach me. Uh, and, and to the extent it does, I've got an excellent team uh, of people that I depend on. And, and the other thing that, that I would say is this notion that people agree on things a hundred percent of the time, uh, is, is just, um, it amuses me. Right. Um, my, my wife and I don't agree on uh, things all the time. And um, um, I, I find that funny. Yeah. I'll say this 100%. Anyone who has met your father, worked with your father, might not agree with him. But everyone agrees he's a gentleman, kind, caring. As, as a family member, it is more difficult to drown that out because you have no control over it. Right. right. At, at least as, as the individual who is the target you have some ability to um, compartmentalize, focus on other things, but but the family member sees this, and uh, you know I feel uh, like my wife. Uh, my wife's a teacher, um, and and I, I ask her uh, all the time, "Are things okay?" Right, because I know she hears things that would be distressing if the roles were reversed. Right. 
Can I ask one question just about being really active in your community? I know that you're on boards and you've served in your community. How do you think that relates to flourishing in the profession? Well, so, so in the legal profession, I, I think it's critically important, right, for especially in a small town uh, or small community that, that the lawyers take on leadership roles in civic organizations. Uh, just mm-hmm. critically important. Uh, you know, we were talking before about um, as, as industry moves out of some areas, there is an absence or a vacuum of, of leadership uh, at that uh, middle management uh, sort of level. Uh, and those are the people who run for school boards, who run for county commission. Uh, who serve on these civic boards. And, and I, I think lawyers have an obligation to serve their community by, by being active uh, in that sphere. Uh, for judges, it, it's a little, uh, little different. It always bothers me for judges to um, uh, sort of pound their chest that, that they are active in the bar mm-hmm. or with the bar association, mm-hmm. right? Big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's not helping your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it is more important for uh, for the judge to be in the community coaching sports, reading to kids at the library or the school. Um, you know, you may not be able to serve as the president of the Kiwanis Club, but you can certainly help organize uh, speakers to come and educate Kiwanis or Rotary uh, on important issues that affect the community. So I think service uh, is of paramount importance, especially in a profession that tends to get a bad rap. Agreed. Okay, so for our last question, we ask all of our guests, if there's one thing in politics that you could fix, if you had a magic wand, what would it be? Or the courts, really. Yeah, if you, want to you can use way. whatever. So, so let, let me talk about an initiative. Okay. Right? And, and this, this sort of touches on your last question, but if there's one thing I could fix. Every time a veteran walks into a courtroom charged as a criminal, every uh, criminal defendant goes back and fills out Uh, an affidavit of indigency in an attempt to get a court-appointed attorney. There should be a box on that for veterans to check that they are veterans so that the court can notify individuals that this person needs services, whether it's getting um, medication straightened out, appointments to the VA, housing vouchers through the VA, or just counseling services. I I think the courts could do a far better job of helping our veterans than what we do now. Now, there are veteran treatment courts. Um, there, there, are, there is um, a segment of the bar that helps active duty military, but we need to do a better job as a court system, as a community, as a state, in, in assisting our veterans. Uh, veteran suicide is a, a huge issue, and, and typically individuals who uh, have served in the military, who get involved with the criminal justice system, have uh, issues that counseling and services can help address. And if we could do that in the right way, we could put a dent uh, in that figure here in North Carolina, uh, and we could better serve uh, the people who served us. This office is two blocks from Moore Square, and I see a lot of homeless, mental health problems. A lot of those guys I talk to are veterans that are just having a hard time getting back into society. I think you're onto something there. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's a simple thing. Mm-hmm. Just checking that box, and then what, it, it may not mean a positive result from the from the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. right? But it can be a positive step to getting that person on the right track once they're done. If you had that in place, you could track them all the way through. And if they did go to prison, uh, then you could have a reentry program where you could do unit counseling with those individuals who have yeah. special circumstances due to their military services. Uh, it's something I'm passionate about, something I'm working to improve, and uh, hopefully 
hopefully it will bear bear some fruit. It's great. Well, Supreme Court Justice Phil Berger Jr., we appreciate everything you are doing for the state of North Carolina, your service on the courts. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. There were a couple times in that conversation, Sky, when we were talking to Justice Berger, where I thought to myself, I'm talking to a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) (laughs) He's right here in our office, sitting on the couch, talking to us about Detroit Tigers baseball and about sports and his life. I find him so personable easy to talk to, laid back. Thank you, Justice Berger, for spending time with us, sharing your life story. We certainly hope to have you back. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from none other than Todd Johnson. He is at Todd Johnson NC35, and the tweet is, Biggest lie lobbyists will ever tell you. I just need two minutes. (laughs) I think I've said that lie to Senator Johnson before. Have you? Mm-hmm. And how long did your meeting take? Um, I don't know. Probably longer, a lot longer than two minutes. I want to say in fairness to Senator Johnson, you go into his office and he is also very fun to talk to. Mm-hmm. And you'll end up talking about cigars or you'll end up talking about his kids. One time I got an explanation about his wife has red hair and how in 100 years there won't be any more redheads. And he had a good explanation. I can't remember what it was. But Senator Johnson, you can just sit there and talk and talk and talk until Joey Stansberry, his legislative assistant, comes in and says, Senator, you've got another meeting waiting for you. Good guy. Fun guy. Did you see that story this week about whether we needed another schoolhouse rock? I thought I saw something about that. What was it? It's the 50-year anniversary of Schoolhouse Rock, which I know you're going to be shocked by, but I loved as a child. I loved Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, it's good. And then did you see that there were some tweets about that? I think Colin Campbell said there could be an NCGA one where the bill just never leaves rules. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was one that was like, well, how do you know they're sad when they get to rules? Maybe it's an alternate universe where they wanted to die. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite Schoolhouse Rock song? 
Oh, I love them all. Uh, I like conjunction, junction. I did What's that. What's your function? Oh my goodness. Thank you for bringing it up. I did that in my town's lip sync, which is our second biggest event in our town <laughs> growing up. And um, <clears throat> to spice it up a little bit, I painted in glow in the dark paint. And at the end, Adam turned the lights off. <laughs> <laughs> really? So it said and button or at the end. Not to brag, but it was pretty good. <laughs> Do we have any video of this? I'm sure there is. The local lip sync would play on the local TV station like every Friday night at 10 p.m. Conjunction, junction, what yeah. show so function. we made it into like little, like we were actual little railroad cars, you know? Uh-huh. I was in high school, so it's not like I was 10 doing this. Uh-huh. But we also had a guy who every year did a different George Strait song. Really? <laughs> he always won too. He can really lip sync. <laughs> so you're just lip syncing to the music and people yeah. are just moved by it so much. The first time I ever participated, I was in second grade and we did car wash working at the car, car wash. wash yeah. I also did uh, music th- killed the radio star. Uh-huh. Um, that was video killed the radio. video killed the radio star. That was in fourth grade. Uh-huh. <laughs> Conjunction Junction, though, it was like it was a higher quality production. <laughs> so I remember watching these videos on Saturday morning cartoons. Do they do those anymore? I don't know. Those were great. The more you know kind of thing. And they'd play yeah. these great educational videos. I, you know, I'm just a Bill. It's just great. You know, kind of. That's uh, how I knew the preamble. Yeah. Remember Betsy Ross? There was one about her making yeah. the flag. Yeah. Someone gave me a CD maybe 10, 15 years ago of like some updated versions of some of the songs that had all the old ones and then there was some rap in there weren't as good though you really need that that whole 70s 80s vibe going on my dad had the records too he was he was like a big record guy so he would buy the schoolhouse rock you know my dad he's too cool for like traditional means yeah he only listens to side b right (laughs) is he that guy yeah he was mad because when we went to the Casey Musgraves concert, Britt and I flew out to Nashville and met my parents. That year, she won a Grammy, and he was like, a lot of people know about her now. I don't know if I can keep going. <laughs> I had a friend like that in college, and he only listened to obscure music. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big Huey Lewis in the news fan. Uh-huh. Love Huey Lewis. And like he wanted to hear Depeche Mode, but he would never listen to Side A. It always had to be Side B. Mm. And he was always like, Huey Lewis in the news. You got to listen to something more intellectual. He was from New Jersey. Mm. I just found that so absurd. There's nothing wrong with a good pop song. I really love the beat, kids. I do. Like My friend played this one song, Side B of Depeche Mode. Or Morrissey. I love Morrissey, he'd say. And it sounded like someone had a bag of nails and were just shaking them. And he was like, this is brilliant. This is music we're going to remember forever. When I was growing up, the Now CDs were really big. Yes. Now that's what I call music. Yeah, it's like a greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. Did you do Columbia House and all that where you'd buy all the CDs for like a dollar a piece and then you had to buy a CD every six weeks? No. Well, you're not old enough for that. Yeah, sorry. We're not even close to being the same age. That's true. (laughs) 
Well, anyone pops, <laughs> anyone my age, you go and do a credit history of yourself, like you're trying to get a loan or something, and something will pop up on your credit history, and it's like you owe Columbia House from some CD club you joined while you were in college. Everyone, I think, knows what that's all about. I didn't. Well, you're not old enough. Well, not everyone then. <laughs> everyone my age. I think with this, we need to go ahead and sign off. Sign us off, Scott. <laughs> like we said, this week was chaotic. I'm sure we'll talk more about the tournament next week. Senator Berger did say that he expected it to be a slow week next week, but we are sure that there will be news, and we will update you on what that news is. Until then, enjoy this weekend. Enjoy the tournament. We hope your team, whoever you're rooting for, wins. And please remember to do politics better.